Hello and welcome to The Progress Theory, where we discuss scientific principles for optimising human performance. My name is Dr Phil Price and on today's episode we are joined by Dr Sean McLaren, SNC coach and exercise scientist for the Newcastle Falcons and sport and exercise physiology lecturer at Durham University. Now we've discussed the use of RPE for strength training quite a lot in this season of The Progress Theory, but what about for endurance performance? Do we use RPE as some kind of intensity variable which we chase during our interval work or can we actually use it reflectively post-session? Well, in this episode, Sean and I discuss how to use RPE for endurance performance, how RPE sometimes can take a while getting used to and also can we use RPE for both strength and endurance training in a hybrid program? But before we get into the episode, I just want to tell you a little bit about our sponsors because without them this podcast would not be possible. I wanted to express my gratitude to my production partner, Cult Media. Cult Media has been instrumental in the development and success of the progress theory. They have created brand guides, comprehensive podcast strategies, enhanced the podcast production, developed custom workflows for me and edited and mixed all of the video, audio and social media content. Cult Media's simple coach, create and collaborate process has saved me hundreds of hours in podcast production, resolved countless technical issues and consistently helped me to improve my podcasting game. So if you want to establish and engage your audience or are ready to launch your own podcast, head to www.cult.media, that's cult with a K, to learn more. Also, thank you to Human24, fueling human potential and optimizing everyday human performance and well-being. The supplement range at Human24 not only helps improve your lifestyle, it optimizes it. The Human24 products are designed to fit around your circadian rhythms from the moment you wake up to key moments in the day when you need optimal focus to getting the best night's sleep. There is a product to optimize each phase of the day. My personal favorite is the Live On Form Pack, consisting of the products Rise, Flow, and Pre-Sleep. Rise is for the morning, and it's my absolute favorite. It's a drink that tastes amazing, it hydrates me, and improves my focus to win the morning. At 2 p.m., I take Flow, which is a caffeine-free nootropic, perfect for improving alertness and concentration during that mid-afternoon slump. And finally, I take pre-sleep just before bed, which is a comprehensive nighttime complex, perfect to support a performance-driven lifestyle. Check out the website www.hmn24.com for all their products, articles, and links to their awesome podcast for those wanting to learn more about human performance. You can even check out the episode I did with them. I thoroughly enjoyed my chat with Phil Lerney, co-founder of Human24, and it has led to an awesome collaboration with Human24 supporting the progress theory. If you want a 10% discount on all Human24 products, head to their website via the links in our Instagram bios of the progress theory or my personal Instagram account at Dr. Phil Price, or use the code PhilPrice at checkout. As always, follow The Progress Theory on Instagram and YouTube and check out all of our other episodes. Here is Dr. Sean McLaren. Sean, how are we? I'm very good. Thanks, Phil. How are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad. Thank you so much for coming on to The Progress Theory. I've really been looking forward to this particular topic because we talk a lot about RPE or ratings of perceived exertion when it comes to lifting weights. 
but I'm like, oh, could that potentially be used for your endurance work? If we did, could could that be like a metric that we're using across both endurance and strength work, which will be really good for anyone that's looking for pushing their hybrid goals or their ability to push strength and endurance at the same time? So right, your knowledge in this area is going to be so key for this. So I've been really looking forward to learning all about it. So thank you so much for coming on. No pressure. No, honestly, the the pleasure is all mine. I really like sort of uh, this. This is this is kind of why we do what we do, right? It's the it's the how do you take all this this information, this knowledge, and how do you operationalize it to be able to have people use it to to train better, to work towards their goals of health or performance, whatever it may be. So RPE is a real interesting one, mm. uh, especially when you look at this like this cross modality training. So it'd be interesting to see what we what we cover and where we go. That sounds good to me. Do you want to start off by telling a bit more about yourself for anyone that's not familiar with you and your work? Uh, yeah, for sure, which would probably be every single person listening. I'm a strength and conditioning coach uh, and sports scientist. Um, I currently work at Newcastle Falcons. Prior to my work at Newcastle Falcons, I've, I've in a similar working capacity, I've been with Premier League, the Rugby Football League, Great Britain Rugby League, uh, Nottingham Rugby. Hartlepool United, Teesside University. So um, I've mainly worked in and across team sports uh, and with that mainly rugby and more so union than league. But my time back at uh, Teesside University, I was fortunate to work in and around our elite athlete support programme, in and out of the physiology lab. So I did have a chance to work with some some real cool endurance athletes there. And that was athletes as athletes and also colleagues who were who were athletes as well. Um, and sort of some of the some of the things that we might cover today takes me back to conversations that that I would have with those guys like almost 10 years ago now. Um, and I was thinking about some of these some of these points that that I thought oh, I've got to I've got to remember to mention that because that's mm-hmm. a, a, you know a real good one. These little anecdotes that you just have in conversations with people. You can't get them in in papers or anything more formal. So this is kind mm-hmm. of a Hopefully, a great platform to bring to bring that to life. But yeah, I kind of you know what, what what do you do? What are you? I kind of I feel like I've got a a rack at the door full of different hats, and depending on what I'm doing on the day, I have to put a different one on. But but I'm primarily in in uh, full time practice at the moment. I also work with Durham University in the sport and exercise science department, teaching sports physiology and performance, all the other bits that go go with it, and. What no one's paying me to do, but I still do because I see it as part of everything is is been actively involved in sports performance research. And, and the areas that I'm really interested in at the moment are, are training load monitoring uh, and what that is and how we understand it and how we can um, m- monopolize it to the point of using it to to better refine the training process and, and achieve training outcomes. And within that, as part of that sort of subjective uh, athlete monitoring, and that's monitoring of our training loads through things like RPE, but then also kind of the effects of training load, fatigue and, and recovery and, and soreness and all these other nice buzzwords or, or, or colloquial terms that actually we use them quite a lot in training. You know, fatigue is a great one, but then if you ever sit down and ask yourself, what is fatigue? You could go to the other end of the scale and say, what is fitness? It's these sort of terms where we go, wow, what, what, how do we understand that and how do we measure it? And, and then this is where I think the subjective stuff comes in because you could say oh you know fitness fitness is your vo2 max well it is but it's other things as well it's more than the sum of its individual parts and that's where i think that subjective monitoring comes in and and plays like a real cool part in this this kind of process for for training um so so that's kind of like a bit of an overview of where i'm at and the different 
bits I'm doing at the moment or the different hats that I've got uh, that, I'm, that I'm putting on. But yeah, the stuff with RPE is, uh, you know, a real interesting one to me. And, and I guess we'll, we'll probably touch on this, but kind of how can we use it as a tool to either prescribe training, but then also to to monitor and evaluate training as well. Kind of two separate things, two different uses, both both potentially quite valuable, but also both kind of a lot of factors to to consider before we just kind of roll out and start pointing at numbers on a scale or thinking about things in our head. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to hearing all of these anecdotes. Is there like a, a particular one that has led you to go towards RPE and using it for not only assessing but monitoring as well? I guess there's none really. This this sort of just some collective thoughts that amalgamated over over time. Really, I guess going back to my time at Teesside, I'd I'd finished my masters there, and by the time I'd finished, I'd got a bit of a bug for the for the research process. And and this wasn't like doing research because you were going to get a job for it or paid for it. I was fascinated with this idea that we have like so many questions, and you hear them in in elite sports clubs. You hear them in the gym, you know, what's the best way to do this? Or is, is this exercise better than this one? And, and these are all things that we could actually take, formalize into a question or a hypothesis, hopefully have some theory that supports it and test it. And I, and I, I kind of fell in love with that, with that process. And it was almost research as a means of knowledge generation and, and innovation. I was quite set that I wanted to go on and, and, and do a PhD. Uh, unfortunately one came up and the title of it was, um, Sports performance and injury prediction using mobile technology. That was like 2014. I got that project in 2015 as a PhD scholarship. And the thesis that was submitted in 2018 was the application of differential ratings of perceived exertion to train and monitoring in team sports. So it changed a lot. And I guess that's just a reflection of how much thought my thoughts and ideas changed and those of the people that I worked with in and around at the time. And I was using RPE back then as just kind of, I understood or thought I understood and learned is, yeah, it's just this other measure where there's a there's a scale of zero to 10 and give me a number that, that hits. It's like your heart heart rate monitor, 80%, eight out of 10, whatever. And I was just kind of, I was working with, I was actually my, my, my current employees, I, I did my first internship there at the Falcons. This was like 10 years ago now. And I would I would collect RPEs and sometimes just like ask players what was your RPE for for that and they just you know, give me a number and tell me a number and then it was only kind of through going through that that process at the time and thinking hold on is this is this the, am I doing this the right way because I've just asked someone a number there then they've changed their mind based on something else that they've seen or someone else that they've heard and then I'm like well if I had a heart rate monitor. And all the way through exercise, it was telling me I was at 80%. And then when I downloaded it, my average exercise heart rate was 70% because it just decided to change its mind. Like, I wouldn't be happy with that. I'd be complaining to first beat a polar. But regardless of how much the equipment costs, RPE's free heart rate monitors, maybe 60 quid if you, if you want a belt that links to an app. You'd be more inclined to question and complain about the one that you're paying for, not the one that's free. But the information was getting used in the same way. So that made me sort of think and be really critical about what we were doing and these kind of like methodological, if you like, elements towards it. But but the value of RP, I guess in particular for endurance training and, and thinking more now like as a prescriptive tool. And this is what if, if you kind of look at how how these these kind of greats, you know, Gunnar Borg, uh, John Buckley, people like that, how how they would talk about RPE. 
they, they would say production mode and estimation mode. So can you produce an output based on a target perception of effort? Or can you estimate what your perception of effort is for what you're doing right now? So, so I would, the modern day terms for that are prescription and monitoring, I think. And when I was at Teesside, a colleague of mine there and still a really good friend now, Jonathan Taylor, Johnny was a, a sort of middle distance athlete for, for, for GB. Uh, he ran like five, 10K. I remember watching him do a lot of cross-country events when they were broadcast as well. Johnny was a physiologist at Teesside. So this was like our bread and butter of what we would do in terms of like fitness testing with endurance athletes, things like that. And Johnny was a few years ahead of me. And I, I remember going in for experience to kind of like shadow him, see what he was doing. When, when he would race, he wouldn't have a, a heart rate monitor on. And, and I would always ask why, because to me then I was like a real, um, I was like so objective about things. I'd want, you know, if it can give me a number, give me it and let's monitor everything and we can adapt and go from there. And Johnny, this is one of kind of one of the anecdotes that I sort of reflect on now. He he said that uh, he doesn't need a heart rate monitor because he just knows if he needs to run at a certain pace based on kind of what needs to happen externally or internally to the body, he he would just know. And kind of as an elite athlete at that level, where endurance is your bread and butter, they are so in tune with their body that they can set and regulate these intensities. And it's anyone's guess as to what the precise mechanisms of that are. But if you kind of lean on speaking with these like real elite end athletes and then try and amalgamate that with what's out there in research, I think that perception of effort has a huge part to play in that, which is kind of setting pace during continuous exercise, continuous endurance exercise. Uh, in terms of it, its relevance as something that can determine failure. So, so if you, if you again, if you kind of lean on the, what's there in the research, some people would tell you that actually it's not muscular fatigue or pain that determines time to exhaustion. It's actually the perception of effort. Or sometimes it's a mismatch between the perception of effort or what something should be versus what it actually is. And when that when that mismatch occurs and it's higher than normal, then that's where you kind of get um, elevated sensation of effort, for example. Um, so this, so this, it, quite, it quite fascinates me. And, and I think that for those that are in, more in tune with their body, they they seem to sort of be better at this stuff than perhaps just you and I who might turn up to the park run and without a heart rate monitor. Like we have to gauge our pace somehow, right? Um, and, and again, there's a lot of things that, that can be involved in that process. But there's, I think certainly that, that this kind of conscious awareness of how easy or hard it is to drive your legs and to breathe. And, and those are kind of probably the two main cues that people would refer on to sort of gauge where you're at on this scale of like the easiest thing I've ever done to complete maximum, the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, I think for endurance training prescription in particular, it has like, it has real utility and benefit. On a similar vein, I was reading an article recently, which talked about how Kenyan runners are really good at perceiving what level they are at. So for example, they are very good at just knowing what kind of paces they're running at. So if they're running at a five-minute kilometer, they can just sort of like feel it and just know it. Whereas someone like me, I would like really need to have my watch to actually have some perception of what that is. So there's been plenty of times I've gone out running and I think, oh, I'm moving quite fast here. And I look at my watch and like, actually, I'm moving really slow and vice versa. So for a newbie, it's really hard to use it. But you can imagine someone that's so in tune with their the running performance that it would be just so easy for them uh, and I think this particular article was talking about how 
Kenyan runners are almost very naturally good at it, whereas European runners, it takes them a while to get used to being able to be as good using RPE as, say, the Kenyan runners. So, yeah, it's some really it's some really interesting articles out there on similar things to what you just said. I think it definitely shows that whatever whatever this phenomena is that we think is important for setting, regulating, even determine endurance performance, there's probably some aspect of awareness, i.e. your ability to perceive things. And then there's there's potentially like an experience element in there as well. There's a, there's a school of thought that, that sort of says that during, especially during continuous exercise with, with a known endpoint, that your RPE is, is, is based on that known proximity to exercise endpoint. You know, so like when, when you kind of know when the endpoint is, if, if, if we're at a, a certain fixed workload, be it, let's say it's running speed on a treadmill, something that we could control. And, and let's say the true sort of perception intensity of that to the individual is it's pretty hard at the moment. There's a school of thought that says if you tell someone that they've got five minutes left, they'll be pretty accurate to say, yeah, OK, this is pretty hard at the moment. But then if you say to them in a Groundhog Day, you repeat it again. And at the same point, you say you've got 40 minutes left of this. They will instantaneously tell you that it feels harder than it does because of their known proximity to task failure. So they almost rate it harder than it is because they know that to sustain where the, the level of effort that they're at right now is a nigh on impossible task, i.e. it feels harder than what it is. So, so there's definitely, you know, I think, again, going back to your traditionalists, and definitely myself, I, I, I'd say measure perception of exertion or effort well. And there's not everyone agrees that effort and exertion are the same thing. But whatever it is, measure it well. And, and it is just amalgamation of things like your heart rate, your lactate, your breathing frequency. And we can lean on all of the evidence that shows that these things correlate really well with effort during continuous steady state activity. So, so, so that's great. But then you can't, again, there's all this other all these other factors to show that, that that actually uncouples the relationship between these physiological phenomena and effort uncouples due to different situational or motivational or psychological manipulations, characteristics, you know, like deceiving somebody about task endpoint or actually their motivation to continue exercising. Like if it's someone who's been told that they have to run a certain distance to facilitate a goal, maybe lose weight, maybe get a bit fitter. That's different to someone who's running that task because they are internally motivated to get on the podium, for example. Yeah, definitely. There must be some good stories regarding different psychological aspects which can change someone's perception. I guess there's a lot. Well, we've had um, uh, Carla Majen on the on the podcast. He talks a lot about self-talk and strategies during racing, and that was really quite interesting to talk about if you had a number of different strategies that then changed your ability to keep going to the point where if you only had one strategy and you weren't familiar with it as soon as that went out the window your performance started to drop or your perceived exertion started to really increase so you you know your performance started to drop uh, so yeah it's, it's really quite easy to see just a number of psychological issues which could greatly affect perceived exertion yeah, and look, I'd be honest, I, I, I'd, I'd be completely lying to you if I said I, I fully understood how all these things work and integrate. I honestly don't believe that anyone does. 
and and some people have made it their life's work to try and just further our understanding of this more and more. I, I'm a huge fan of Sam McCora's work in and around this stuff and, and his kind of psychobiological model of, of um, endurance performance in, in which perception of effort is a key, if not primary, determinant. And a lot of the work that comes from, from Sam's group and, and collaborators and colleagues, again, they, they've kind of experimentally manipulated things like muscular fatigue, pain, perception of effort, and trying to link it to things like endurance performance, be it be it time to exhaustion or, or, or some kind of like task failure. And what a lot of their work shows is that perception of effort seems to be the key variable where when it goes up, performance comes down. And it's not necessarily the same for the others, for like, you know, muscular fatigue and this more, I guess this more traditional view of like performance is purely determined by your your physiology, uh, or, or maybe even other sort of psychological factors, you know. But but it's fascinating, and that's why, again, Sam's Sam's done a lot of work uh, with endurance athletes uh, in and around like prolonging performance through psychological intervention and manipulation. Um, so like self talk, things like that. So if, if you truly believe that perception of effort is a key determinant of endurance performance, be it sort of exercise uh, intensity or ability or, or time to failure, then anything that can influence that can then directly influence endurance performance. So if you think that there is this kind of psychological component, again, where things like self-talk might lower perception of effort and therefore increase performance potential, then that's then that's all going to be like super beneficial. And, and a lot of this stuff is backed up experimentally. And I, th- I think back to one of one of Sam's studies, there was a series of studies on, on um, priming. And this was done sort of in around 2015. And when, when you prime people, I think the example that they used was like happy and sad faces. But what they tried to do is they give them like uh, a task. I think it was something on a cycle ergometer. So they fixed everything. They fixed all the workload. And they looked at this kind of cycling step test in two conditions. And in both conditions, for a given power output for a certain duration, heart rate, ventilation, everything the same. But RPE was different in the two conditions. And the thing, the experimental manipulator there was this kind of pre-exercise priming. And in one condition, they had like happy faces and like positive kind of motivators. And in the other one, it was like sad faces and sort of like dull and, and almost like a bit depressing. And lo and behold, kind of, I'd say lo and behold, in the condition where it was like negative priming, RPE appeared higher positive priming, RPE lower, despite the fact that the workload was the same, the physiological responses to that workload during exercise were the same, but then RPE was was manipulated. So this was like real uncomfortable reading for me as a physiologist, thinking I'm trying to do, everything I'm trying to do relies on physical strategies to improve physical qualities, to improve sports performance. But then now you're chucking in this extra thing in the mix and something that I've never even considered that's that's in your head and not in your body, that I have no, next to no understanding, certainly qualification to be able to train, manipulate, affect. It, it's sort of like a, a bit of like a real eye-opening moment. But then I guess if you if you sort of even just speak to the lay athlete, they intuitively understand that performance is not just a physiological effect or phenomena. You know, people know that regardless of fitness, if they're on it, they'll run better on a good day. Or, or, or if they're having a bad day for non-physical reasons, like be it work stress or whatever, they may not perform as high or, or, or they may, you know, run the same, but they're suddenly getting higher RPE and potentially even altered heart rate as well due to certain mechanisms. So it's fascinating. And it just all points and paints the picture to show this kind of 
multifaceted complexity of endurance performance and then potentially the things that might that might play a role and a part in that yeah it shows how what you do before like a training session can really affect like your rpe for that session say like oh i want you to hit certain tempo thresholds uh i want you to hit them at rpe 8 and if you had something really good that happened beforehand that's gonna influence what your perceived rpe 8 is if you had some negative news beforehand or like your example with the study like all these the sad faces then all of a sudden that rpe 8 is gonna feel a lot different so while rpe i think is an amazing tool you can understand how it takes a while to get used to using it as as, as either a programming or a monitoring type variable because it can be so variable from day to day depending on what else is happening around the training i guess that's it yeah and i guess i guess you look at that and you say you know again if you talk about your purist they'll say nope can't use it if you want to run under threshold, you've got to measure threshold, and then you've got to find what the speed is or what the heart rate is, and you've got to run at that. Whereas if others, then you go, well, actually, I'm not so set on the fact that this needs to like fit the physiological makeup of what you would see in a textbook. I'm interested in this training and performance phenomenon, and I understand that it's influenced by not only physiology, but psychology and social factors as well. So then what actually, if I regulate exercise intensity based on my perception of effort, and I guess this is where the two differ in terms of whether you would prescribe or whether you would monitor. Because when you monitor, you effectively have to give a, a decision. You have to give a rating. So in my head is is this continuous sensation of perception of, of effort or exertion uh, or, or maybe other things that I think are effort and exertion and there aren't. And if you want to ask me what I did or how I'm, how, how I'm perceiving that, I have, to, I have to give you a rating. And there's a whole other can of worms about how it's rated. But if you want to actually prescribe it, again, you can. there's potentially a, an association with a rating because you might prescribe off a number, but then you could, you could still prescribe off more using kind of the verbal descriptors and verbal anchors. And kind of this is where Borg has his, his range model, where on a scale that starts with absolutely nothing and finishes with the, the absolute maximum that you've ever experienced, there's, there's certain kind of checkpoints and thresholds. And I think, I think Borg eventually figured out or decided that you probably need about seven probably need about seven different categories. And that sort of links with, with traditional psychological theory and Likert scales, things like that. But then if you if you actually prescribe exercise based on, the, you know, this, this run should feel hard, or this should be easy, it should be moderate, somewhat hard, if it's continuous, to kind of hold that perception, the other things that, that traditionally you would fix, like speed and heart rate, they may change. Because now you're trying to hold a variable constant. You're trying to run at a pace that is hard. And that might not necessarily always elicit the same heart rate. It might not necessarily elicit the same speed. Sometimes you can afford to go a bit faster. Sometimes you might have to back off. But then there's a skill report that would say that actually, is that not more because of this idea that performance is a is a real multifaceted phenomenon? Should we be prescribing of that? Or should we go in the objective route? Because if you go the objective route, it's the perception of effort that might fluctuate substantially. But then again, go back to your model of endurance performance. If perception of effort is one of the, if not the most primary determinant of endurance performance, does it not make sense to potentially program off that? Acknowledging that it'll change from session to session because what, what I can produce that feels hard today might be different to tomorrow and then the next day. And that'll be based on a variety of different mm -hmm. factors 
within myself, with my day-to-day fluctuation of my psychobiological systems, but then also what the external environment affords me, be it day of a, of a run, the weather conditions that I face, what I've done, again, prior to it. So two very different school of thoughts there. And I think probably two that people would have a lot of experience with in terms of people have probably tried the perceptual route and people have tried the objective route. And I don't doubt that there probably be as many who say, no, it's objective for me, it's speed and heart rate versus others who go, well, I just go off how it feels. But I think it's easier for the latter to be dismissed as the wrong strategy because it seems simple. And it is simple, like running, it should feel hard. Or running, it should feel moderate. It definitely shouldn't feel easy. It definitely shouldn't feel hard. That's, that's where I want you to stay. you kind of like, imagine you were paying for that as a service. You'd be like, who is this guy? Who is this coach? Is he just making it up? But then when you try and unpick, when you try and understand and un- unpick heart rate and running speed, that's easy. That's like complex systems or, or complicated systems, if you like, where, yes, there's, you can figure out how heart rate responds to exercise intensity and how that determines things like cardiac output and then ultimately our, our external output, which is speed. And we can map it all out and we can join nice dots and lines. Again, it's complicated, but it's all there. Whereas perception is a, is a complex system. We can't join straight lines and neat arrows. It's like a continually merging, murky cloud of sort of interconnected phenomena that are not always linearly related and that they change on a day, but they're still all connected and they're kind of still all evolving around and, and moving. So then I'm like, okay, RPE might be simple on face value, but pull away what you see and try and understand it. Nah, that is that is like ridiculously difficult. In my opinion, more so than things like heart rate, lactate, ventilation, whatever, whatever, all, all these other things. They're, they fit in the nice boxes. That's 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 easy. Yeah, I can see what you mean. I've I've been speaking to a number of coaches who utilize RPE, and one of the things that they particularly like about it is kind of what you've talked about. So you can have like day one RPE eight, and all of a sudden, if you look at things like heart rate, lactate, the speed that they're running at, they're hitting certain objective markers. Then they do the same like a day later, and all of a sudden, you know, it's still an RPE eight, but their running times are down, heart rate is up, you know, it's perceived as much higher. And they almost like RPE because it's like a, a way of also regulating the session. If you let's utilize it for like a, a lift, okay? I want you to do a set of three at an RPE eight and it's lower than last week. And you say, oh, that must be really bad. But really they were saying, well, it's a way of auto-regulating because last week you didn't have this all this work stress or stuff happening in your lives that was happening around that time. And that's the reason why your loads are lower, uh, despite the RPE being the same. And they don't see that as a, as a bad thing. They've utilized RPE just to give you an opportunity to lift less, which is probably better in the long term because it's now incorporating or trying to understand all of the other stresses that are happening around. So yeah, it's giving them information. And I think that's really quite beneficial. Do you like the idea of like, okay, program based upon RPE, but you still track things like heart rate and speeds that you're running out because they just give you an overview of what's happening at that time. So the programming variable is the RPE and then the monitoring stuff is the speed and the heart rate rather than the other way around. It's like, okay, I want you to hit these speeds. I want you to hit this heart rate. Okay, what RPE was that? 
So there's like a difference. Do you prefer one to the other? Do, do you know what? I mean, it's such a great question. And I, I actually have no preference because I think the most important thing is you actually do what you've just said and you don't rely on one piece of information. You don't say, and look, what I what I wasn't intended to hear is, is come here today and say, just use RP for everything. It'd be really, really good. The, the optimal situation is, is, is this merge and amalgamation between objective and subjective. And sometimes you don't even need to understand why they're different. You just need to find out if they are different. So, so that's kind of like what you've just said there in terms of like a monitoring sense. And I'll sort of rely here on, on some, some kind of field-based stuff first, and then we can see how it really applies to, to in the gym. So a lot of what, what seems to be becoming a bit more popular team sports, especially of recent years, that is probably like almost so predominant in historic and endurance sports that it's it, people maybe forget it's even a thing, it, it, is looking at the phys- psychophysiological responses to a fixed external workload as, as a monitoring tool. So typically running for 12 kilometers an hour at four minutes, and that's your warm-up. And at the end, you sort of ask what, what the perception of, of effort was, or you look at exercise heart rate in the last minute. And your theory is, is that we, we do the same. We, we fix that external intensity and then we monitor things where actually fluctuations in them might be indicative of this kind of dose response fitness fatigue model. If I do the same thing and my heart rate over one year or training, a training cycle continues to drop, I can afford to have a lower heart rate and produce the same output. Does that therefore mean I'm gaining fitness? And if it goes the other way, does it mean I'm fatigued? It's actually heart rate's a little bit more complex than that because sometimes your heart rate can drop as a response to fatigue because of a, a lot of physiological factors. But then you can also flip the switch as well. And, and this was originally done, I believe, like the Lambert and Lambert test um, with heart rate, where they would they they would say, okay, I want you to get on a bike and I want you to pedal at a heart rate of 70% or 80% of your maximum. And what I'm going to monitor now is your is your power output. Because I think that actually if if Sean and Phil both cycle at 80%. Phil has the higher power output. Then when we get to 90%, he's going to have a higher power output. And 100%, he's going to have the higher power output. So therefore, he, he has a greater fitness capability or capacity right now. I, I was really fortunate to work with a PhD student, Hannah Sagnan, recently from University of Kent. And, and Hannah's thesis took the idea of the Lambert-Lambert test, but replaced heart rate with RPE. And she had like ultra endurance runners running for four minutes using the Borg six to 20 scale. It's an RPE of, I think it was like 10, 13 and 17, where I'm not so familiar with the six to 20 scale. I don't, I don't use that one anymore. It's what Gunnar Borg would have wanted. Trust me. But that's like moderate, hard and very hard, I believe, or somewhere near there. And Hannah measured uh, things like uh, the running velocity uh, as an outcome measure. And she found that this was like this was really consistent and reliable between weeks, where you wouldn't expect that to change. You wouldn't expect there to be hugely meaningful fluctuations in fitness and fatigue. But then what she did find is that when she did everyone, she tested everyone on that test, and then she got them all on the treadmill. The ones who were running faster at the same RPE had a higher VO2 max, higher velocity VO2 max, higher first and second lactate threshold. So it was like, wow, how cool is it? We could like we could get everyone to a track session. And we could ask them all to run 
at a fixed RPE. And 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 if I'm not mistaken from Hannah's work, she actually found that the faster the the, the harder the perception was, the more kind of valid and reliable this was at discriminating between people who were sort of fitter and less fit. Um, we could get everyone to run around the track a, a perception that is very hard for four minutes and we could we could measure their running velocity even if we did it as average speed and we didn't have you know kind of gps uh, and just do it like off a manual timer and actually the ones that run faster at that 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 fixed perception leaning on the evidence that we have here would suggest that they if we could vo2 max them and treadmill test them now they would have a higher vo2 max the velocity vo2 max etc cetera, etc cetera. so that that was quite um that was like a real sort of interesting one. And, and a follow-up study to that was doing the exact same test, but then also looking at the association with like effectively Cooper, like a 12-minute time trial. And that was like repeated measures this time. Like over the course of uh, a couple of months, everyone done this testing about five or six times. They'd done the RPE submaximal warm-up run, and then they'd done the 12-minute time trial. So then everyone has their own individual relationship now. And she found almost exactly the same, is that when an individual's velocity in the warm-up run changed, their time trial also changed, i.e. when they were running slower at a fixed RPE in the warm-up, they ran slower on the time trial. Within, or, or, or within 12 minutes, they didn't run as far. So, so, so you can certainly use it, and, and, and you can see how it has this link with, with the element of auto-regulation. And there, there's kind of empirical links between not only physiology that discriminates between athletes, but also a change within an athlete in terms of if my velocity, and my RPE changes, does my time trial performance change? Whereas the first question is, is if my velocity is lower than Phil's, does Phil score better than me on a treadmill test? So that was like some real cool stuff of, of and, and just linking with this idea of using RPE like a, as an auto-regulation tool. The, the, the other way that we've seen it can be really efficacious is actually when there's a disconnect between RPE and heart rate for a similar external workload. And there's been some work done on this in, in things like football, small-sided games where um, people's heart rate drops or, or, or you, you don't have the ability to hit a, a certain heart rate. So you could say, oh, they're running around more and the heart rate's lower. That means they're fitter. But actually, a sign of overreaching and fatigue can be a suppression of maximal heart rate and therefore all submaximal heart rate for a given workload. But what you typically see there is perception of effort is increased. There's something within this phenomena of how easy or hard does it feel where you go, wow, this feels really tough, even though my heart rate's like 80% of maximum. And when I normally do this, whatever this is, it's like 87% of maximum. My heart rate's nearly 10 beats a minute lower, but I'm finding it much tougher. So it's this triangulation between three things, internal objective, internal perceptual, and external performance, and how you sort of use the link between them to maybe identify things like positive training effects, fitness, freshness, readiness, but also negative training effects like fatigue and overtraining. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting, so, right? It's really interesting. It that way, it's so much more complex, yeah. It's more complex, but then it's almost like, wow, Like, but but take RPE out of it, right? How do you do this otherwise? How, mm. how do you do that without RPE? There's nothing like it that replaces it. Because effort is effort mm. on its own. And, uh, and sometimes this is where people get confused, and they get confused because it's hard. When you, when you train and when you exercise, you feel 
or, or you you experience different sensations. Feelings and sensations are different. I must remember that. So the sensations you get, you might get the sensation of fatigue, but that's not effort. Discomfort, that's not effort. Pain, that's not effort. Enjoyment, that's not effort. Mm. But they all occur with effort or maybe in response to effort. Mm. And sometimes they correlate really well, and they should. The more effort you put in, the more fatigue you feel. So effort should be like, how easy or hard it is to breathe and drive your leg muscles. Fatigue is, is, is rather than being like a, a, a response to like what you're doing right now. Like, like right now, you and I can't experience effort, physical effort, because we're sat down. There's no exertion. So therefore, we can never experience an RPE above zero. We could feel fatigue right now because fatigue is, is this awareness of your capacity to perform from fatigue from a subjective point of view. It's linked with your 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 perception of of things like your energy levels, or again your tiredness and your ability to do something. So I could sit here now and say, "Yeah, I feel I feel pretty fatigued." I couldn't sit here now and say, "Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling effort. I'm feeling like a feeling like a four out of ten on the on the CR ten scale." I can't because I'm not exerting. So during exercise, the two should should correlate, right? But then sometimes people actually confuse one for the other. Like, are they actually putting effort in or are they just experiencing fatigue? So, so to understand the differences between these, like, perceptual phenomena, to actually, for us to understand them, it is tough. But then to explain this to our athletes and try and have them disassociate them, like, that's really, really tough. And this is when, again, when people say, oh, I like RP because it's easy. And I'm like, wow, I need to buy you a coffee because I think it's really hard. Hmm. So you need to tell me what you're doing so I can make it easy. Um but, but going back to the original point, it's like this association between perception of effort, something like heart rate, and then speed as external workload. Take perception of effort out there and you're left with external workload and heart rate and you're interpreting the relationship between the two. You, you've lost something that can actually tell you a very different and unique piece of information that the other two can't on their own. So sometimes people are like, oh, yeah, RP is good. I prefer heart rate. I'm like, why do you say it as though it's apples and apples? Because it's probably apples and oranges, you know. Like it, it, it's its own thing that belongs in the in the in the ether of like being able to prescribe and and monitor training and exercise. And and it's it's sort of similar for you know in similar vein you've got it for like like you've mentioned for resistance training. And here I guess it's probably used more prescriptively where you say I want you to lift at a certain level of effort. Now, now this is actually really tough, and, and there's there's maybe some lessons that you can pull from resistance training to endurance training for RPE. Because let, let's say that uh, we we take an exercise like a like a like a squat, okay, and we ask someone to lift at a certain level of effort. I don't know. Let's say that your your squat one rep max. I'm, I'm going to back you, Phil. Okay, so I'm going to put you on like one forty. <laughs> okay, one forty. I think I'm been. Yeah, you're, you're nodding. Uh, so we've got 140 as a 1RM, right? <laughs> so if I put... Go up um, to make me uh, go up to make me feel better. <laughs> Let's say 140, right? Come on, be modern. Yeah. <laughs> if we put 140 on the 140 on the bar, that's that's your true 1RM, right? So half of 140 is 70. So if we put 70 kilos on the bar, that means you're lifting at 50% of your one repetition maximum. So I could ask you to lift that for one repetition and I could say, what was your RPE for that? And then you say, oh, it was this. And then we go to 80 kilo for one, 90 kilo for one. And each time I ask you, what was your RPE? And it'll, and it'll follow this kind of relationship that, that, that actually in that sense, it, I, I don't 
honestly believe that it's linear. But what, what we know with RPE is it's, uh, it's like a positively accelerating function. The closer you get to, to kind of your true maximum, the same increment in the external workload causes bigger increments in the perception of effort. And, and that's actually not necessarily an effort thing. That's a perceptual thing. It's the same with loudness. It's the same with brightness. It's the same with the perception of color saturation as well. That when you get closer to the top, smaller increments of, or, or the, the equal increments, like you know, a 5% increment, your RPE goes up. Oh, now it's up even more. Now it's up even more. You get this kind of exponential relationship. I think that if we asked you to do these lifts of one and one and one, and we plotted your RPE, we, we would see something like that, especially if we plotted it using category ratio scaling. We had a, a scale with words and numbers on. But let's go back to your 50% condition, right? You've got 70 kilo on the bar and you do an RPE and you give me an RPE. You, you do one rep and you give me an RPE. If I keep asking you to do repetitions, what's going to happen to that RPE? It's going to go up and up and up and up to the point where if you max out on like 20 25 reps whatever you've got in your legs and then you fail the rpe by definition at that point of failure is maximum regardless of the weight that was on the bar so this again brings in the factor that proximity to failure increases and again i'm, I'm just i'm just leaning on on all the great work that was done by gunnar borg here which shows that for individual intensities we have this non-linear relationship between the exercise stimulus and perception of effort. But then for a given stimulus, again, let's say we've got 70 kilo on your back and you're squatting to failure, your RPE will, will increase linearly from whatever it starts at to the point of task failure. And that's like max reps possible for that given weight. So, so I think that's like real interesting in terms of like how you perceive it. And again, there's some that would argue RPE is mainly a determinant of um, knowledge or perception to task failure and then there's others that would say it's kind of it, it's not that and it's determined by by different things I, I don't think it's you know the arguments can sometimes be semantic but they're clearly important of, of how we understand what we're dealing with and what we're not but then when it comes to resistance training that's when i'm like oh so do i want a program based on how that initial lift feels because that's probably relative to percentage one rm or do i want a program in terms of by the time you finish the last repetition it should feel very hard because I can put any weight on my back or, or on the barbell and just keep lifting it until I hit that certain point. And then I think that this is relevant for endurance training as well, because we can run at a fixed speed. And just like we get cardiac drift, we get RPE drift. If we keep running at the same speed, to some point, our RPE for that given speed is going to gradually rise and increase over time. So do we want to program off like initial speed or do we want to program off kind of that target where we reach? It's quite difficult. Or do we, like we mentioned, do we want to adjust so that the perception actually stays the same? But we, but we just, you know, we hit, the, we sustain this constant perception, and actually we let we let the, the speed fluctuate. So that's where it can get, it can get really interesting, especially like in the weight room, and and how we maybe use and prescribe and understand RPE. Mm. Sorry, I was just going to pick up on the whole RPE drift thing because that's that's a term I've not heard before but makes sense because I remember asking this question not too long ago about how to program RPEs for tempo work so for example if you say RPA of this tempo run of four minutes for this particular interval like where do you take that RPA because clearly as you start the interval it's going to feel much easier than it is at the end so 
are you starting at eight and you're assuming that that RP is going to drift and all of a sudden you're at nine, so it's not really hitting the aim? Or do you start at an RP seven, assuming that it's going to drift to the point where by the time you finish the tempo, it's like, yeah, that's an RP eight. Yeah, because different. it seems like the longer the tempo is, the harder it might become to try and hit certain RPEs. And it kind of reminded me of the whole lifting to failure as the more you do, the closer you're going to get to it. So RPE changes throughout the set. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of a tempo run in a way. So what would your recommendations be there? I I completely agree. Um, You know, I guess, again, I'm just sort of thinking like in team sports, we mainly prescribe intervals, interval, high intensity uh, interval training because that's uh, better suited to the demands of what we do. And actually as, as a prescription tool there, it's really, really tough. Because, uh, of course, similar to tempos, you get this cumulative bout effect, whereby even though you, you, if you run at the same speed, the same tempo, or the same whatever, bouts two and three and four are harder than their predecessors because um, you're, you're accumulating and amalgamating the, the fatigue, effectively. It's like lack of recovery before the next one, before you go again. You're, you're recovered to baseline, but your capacity to perform is now uh, reduced. So that's where it becomes different because then, I think prescribing off RP then can be pretty tough. Like if you tell someone to do a, an interval, not, not as long as a tempo, let's say we were going like 30 on 30 off and you just say, I want you to run hard for 30 seconds. It's like, am I basing running hard on like my initial speed? So I, am, am, I, am I sort of basing this on how quick I'm running and that's like how much I'm lifting on the bar? Or am I basing it on like by the end of that 30 seconds, it should feel hard and I sort of rate up, regulate and down regulate from there. Um, I think probably what we want is more towards the latter. But on the first few intervals, it's so hard for athletes to use that as the as the cue, if you like, because there's kind of no continuous, again, it comes back to effort is a continuous sensation. And if you're there for interval number one, and my instruction is run so it feels hard, and I've done nothing at this point, and I go three, two, one, go, for me to go from nothing for it to feel hard, I've got to set out the blocks pretty quick and then I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna get a, a smack in the lungs before I, I I very suddenly drift back down to to reality and where I'm out there. So I think it's pretty tough. I think it can probably be used not as a initial prescriptive tool for things like tempos and high intensity intervals, but maybe as a, a subsequent moderator of sets thereafter. And again, it could be this kind of amalgamation of, of other factors that would would, would influence your effort but not effort like your fatigue or perception or proximity to task failure i think it's probably more a bit of a kind of like a moderator there either whether it's prescriptively or, or it's in your head whereas with with stuff like the short intervals that i spoke about you would kind of know that before you got to that point in any case if you had a certain distance to hit in 30 seconds and you're not hitting that distance you're going to perceive it as harder than it is because if you were hitting that distance it would definitely be harder than it is right now so yeah, it's it's really interesting, and this is where I think that like we we become quite exposed as exercise scientists, or maybe it's not we. I'm using that more for my own uh, my own shortcomings in terms of like we we really don't have too much of a clear or conclusive answer on this stuff. In fact, my next question was going to be around recommendations. So as we don't have like a conclusive answer on this stuff, say I am I'm a hybrid athlete. I want to program some endurance work that involves some intervals, some tempo runs, and my sort of longer, easy work. How would I use RPE 
to try and guide training for those sessions? So I think if, I guess if we if we start uh, sort of in the in the weight room, I think in terms of RPE, what's interesting is if you look at the if if, if you believe that during a, a given set, the RPE is probably more going to be reflective of like how close you were to task failure. So like if I could perform ten reps with a weight, and I did seven, I'm probably going to give you a seven out of ten. It, it's it's the inverse of repetitions in reserve, which I think is a brilliant prescriptive tool in terms of if we want to try and set like a, a bar weight or, or a tonnage, whatever. Okay, I want you to do six repetitions, but you should feel like you've got two reps left in the tank by the end. And, and, and I think the closer you get to task failure or proximity to task failure, athletes, especially those who are resistance trained and accustomed to it, they intuitively know and understand that. If I'm in the weight room and I'm actually doing sort of high-intensity circuits, so I'm using this as a bit of like an off-feet conditioning stimulus. Again, I work in rugby and we do this all the time because some of our athletes are like 120 kilo. They have clear goals to maintain body composition or try and sort of keep body fat low, but we can't overrun these guys because backs just go and everything like that. So we'll do a lot of like intervals with medicine balls and, and, and ski ergs and rowers and how do you prescribe between all these different bits of kit and stuff? But if I say, look, it should, it should always feel very hard. How, how, how many med ball slams do I need to do in 30 seconds? It should feel very hard. If it feels easier, you need to go harder. If it feels extremely hard, you need to back off a little bit. So there's kind of like two different examples of how you could use um, RPE or, or definitely this kind of um, perceptual auto-regulation like within the weight room. I think then if you're coming out and it's uh, if you come out into the field and we look at it in terms of endurance training, again, we've got a couple of things. We've got this, this idea that we can produce RPE or we can produce exercise from RPE, this like production mode, and that's training prescription. So that's going to be really good uh, maybe if we're kind of on longer runs or to the towards the latter set of tempos or intervals, whereas actually if we know that the goal is for it to – is for it to feel a certain intensity for it to be moderate or for it to be hard or be very hard or extremely hard and maybe he's understanding actually in the first instance where does it need to be we we could then regulate performance i.e running speed based on deviations from that expected perception so like if i want my tempo runs to actually uh, be a clear uh, amalgamation and accumulation of of fatigue under the belt then by definition if i do like four or five sets then sets five and four and five should feel harder than one and two. But actually, if I just want to hit that con constant sort of plateaued stimulus, then if anything needs to change, it has to be my running speed based off my perception. I think if you go like kind of more, more, more continuous, it, it's easier to have this conscious awareness of, of your perception of effort. And again, that's going to drift up over time. So do you use that as a regulator for, for pace and for, and for speed as well? And then we can have a look at like, how can we use it to actually monitor exercise so so we've already mentioned it as a bit of a, a testing or a diagnostic tool to look at maybe the speed we could produce for a fixed level of effort or for a fixed heart rate what is the corresponding level of effort so like if i run i run to the point where my heart rate is 80 percent, and i try and hold that for four minutes and that normally feels a certain uh level and i, and I know what that is deviations from that might be indicative of, of fatigue for example and we could also bring in this idea of running speed there, run at a fixed speed. If heart rate drops and RPE goes up, that might be a, a negative training effect. It could be fatigue or something else. If I'm running at the same speed for four minutes and my heart rate drops and my RPE drops, then actually that's maybe indicative of a, 
a more chronic positive training effect, like a fitness effect. So it's using this sort of triangulation and, and, and differences between the two. And, and I guess the last one when it comes to sort of hybrid training, concurrent training, whatever we call it, is is using RPE as part of like this broader training load monitoring. And this is primarily the way that we would use it now in uh, in team sports because we don't prescribe like we the goal is to execute a certain amount of plays or to do like five minutes of possession or like three sets of three attack v defense. Like we prescribe what, what needs to happen from an executional and a goals point of view, that are technical tactical. The running and the subsequent internal load is a consequence of that. We'll wait until the end of the session and then we'll say to we'll say to our players, can you give us an RPE for for that session? Try and think about everything on average. Don't think about what you did at the end. Don't think about any one point in time. Just on average what it was. And and and, and this is synonymous not in terms of what it should be representing, but how we would represent the session from a heart rate point of view. We would look at exercise average heart rate we could also look at peak heart rate so we could maybe ask them to recall peak rpe we would look at training impulse for example maybe it's like edward's training impulse and then session rpe would be that average rpe multiplied by duration now this is like a whole new can of worms and i think that some of these things are good but there needs to be a lot more thought in them but session rpe might be a good way of actually trying to map out plan and reflect on the periodization of concurrent training for endurance athletes so after every session, 10, maybe 15 minutes afterwards, have a clear understanding of what session RPE should be. And then they record it via the optimum scales of the CR10 or the CR100. 100 is better because it's, it's a more refined response range and you don't get threes, fours, fives, you get 35s and 22s and different things. So we can actually have a look and, you know, if, if being a non-expert endurance trainer, if an endurance athlete pulled me in the gym and said, can you look at this training diary? Here's my, here's my scores for last week. And I'm like, you've done eight runs in a week and they were all 50 out of 100 or five out of 10. Like, that, surely that's going to be monotonous and, and, and either you're not pushing on enough or, you, or, or you're, you're, you're actually in a risk or a state of overtraining. Like, you need those fluctuations. Let's make easier days easier and let's make hard days harder. And I think that's like the sign of a good periodized plan, but then to also bring in like resistance training load as well. And, and similar thing, you finished a resistance training session and like how easy or hard did that feel? Yeah, it was, it was somewhat hard. It was, it was 35 on the CR100, 3.5 on the CR10. And then we can sort of add this in, like it works really well sort of just as a reflective tool more than anything else. Like if athletes are aware that they're always giving the same, again, is it an issue with their ability to perceive? Do they genuinely just have this really small range that goes between three, four, five? Or, or, or is actually that, is that the true perception of the stimulus and, and they need to add more variability into the training? So there's kind of like a lot of things that we could use that start with telling people what to do and end with being able to reflect on what we did to tweak and refine going forward. And, and look, it ain't a perfect science, a lot of it, and there's a lot more work to be done with some of it. But this stuff has been tried, tested. People have success stories. People have failure stories. Some people prefer the objective stuff some people are purely on the subjective stuff. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to think that, like most things, the right answer is somewhere in the middle. If, if you're not bringing RPE into your training, I think you're potentially missing a trick. But if you're using solely RPE to program and monitor your training, I think that there's other things you could bring in. And if anything, they just give context to the RPE. If you still want to latch onto that as your primary method to prescribe or monitor training, the other stuff like heart rate and speed could just help give it a bit more context 
it can only be a beneficial useful thing yeah i think that's an amazing point to really highlight is the use of things like heart rate and speed paces to provide context to the rps that you've reported because ultimately one of the reasons why you monitor is so that you can get eight 12 weeks worth of monitoring data that paints a picture of how that person's improved where they've gone right where they've gone wrong so just to have rpe isn't giving you the whole story and it certainly wouldn't necessarily tell you how well they've progressed quite often i think you could probably keep rpe quite uh, similar over eight weeks but you'd like to think their performance and other things are going to change so having a mix between all of them is is almost essential yeah it definitely it just comes back to like to how you how you understand what a good training plan should look like based on training principles we need progressive overload we need variability and variation within that stimulus and and most of all it's dependent and tied to to training goals that we can test either objectively or subjectively depending on, on what those performance or health goals are but yeah i think it has a you know i think if I had to kind of look at what's the too long didn't read, what is the bottom line from all this is that if you're if you're an endurance athlete or if you're engaging in hybrid endurance resistance training and you're not using RPE to facilitate your training prescription and or your training monitoring, you're missing a trick that could give you an advantage. Oh, that's an amazing point to make. Sean, thank you so much. This has been really brilliant. And you could clearly tell several times during this episode that my mind my mind was kind of blown because like ah oh, i've never really thought about it that way and i kind of went a bit speechless at one particular point because i was just like yeah that really really hit home and made it really highlighted the complexity of something that on the surface appears simple and i think people think is quite simple but you know these are the types of discussions we need to truly understand the programming and monitoring tools that we're we're using so thank you so much where can people reach you if they've got any other questions regarding this topic uh i think to be honest with you i think just with the way it, it works for kind of open contact twitter's probably the best place we spoke before phil like i'm not cool enough to have instagram and i know there's all kind of other things now tiktok and that's just yeah I'm, i think i retired from new social media uh sort of circa 2013 so my twitter handle is uh at sean underscore mclaren one sean is s-h-a-u-n mclaren is like the car m-c-l-a-r-e-n and just a one on the end uh and that's probably the best place and and i guess like you know if if, if things need to kind of go a bit deeper down the rabbit hole i'm always happy to share further contact details email phone and we can just get on and uh chew the fat and see where we go yeah that sounds good i definitely recommend everyone checking out your work on either Google Scholar or ResearchGate. That's where I first, I was recommended to you by a friend and then that's when I checked out all your work and then I contacted you on Twitter. So that's yeah, right. It's, it's a pretty nice good system. story yeah, leading a, me to you. It's a pretty good system. Yeah. It's kind of all out there in the ether. Uh, like you say, Google Scholar is almost like a mm. research CV and, and ResearchGate, you know, a similar thing. I, I try and google scholar is better it updates itself research gear i have to do a bit of tlc with it uh like you know so but i'm always happy to kind of share yeah share our work uh you know kind of what we're interested in what what we're doing it comes back to what i said at the beginning it's all about like i don't get paid by anyone at the moment to research like there's no incentive for me other than i genuinely think it's part of the process that i'm involved in mm. which is to answer 
questions that help us refine the way that we program training and recovery to optimize athlete performance and health. And that's kind of like the, what I'm solely motivated by and interested in. And, and the nice part is actually having these conversations where we can lean on, you know, five, six, seven years of personal research and then all the great stuff by other people out there, but trying to speak about it just more colloquially to athletes, to coaches, based on a bit of anecdotal experience and not proving it, but we did see this once, um, to, to make it happen for people in the real world. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. All right, Sean, thank you so much. And if I have any more questions, you might have to do round two of this. I'd love to. Sign me up. Sounds good, mate. Cheers, buddy. Appreciate it. Thanks, Phil. Really appreciate it.